0: As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, please turn in your Bibles to the book of James in chapter 5. We've made it here now to this last chapter in James. We'll be here in a moment, Lord willing, in James uh, chapter 5, and before we pray, before we read, let's pray. Would you join me? Lord, you are our greatest treasure as the High King of Heaven. And Lord, you've called us to seek first the kingdom of God. Would you make that our desire? Lord, would you help us in this moment to really, to really listen to your word here? To cherish these things and even to surrender to them, that you would be honored and glorified, and that this would also be for our good. We ask your guidance now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is James in chapter 5. I want to take uh, this morning these first uh, six, well, six and a half uh, verses. So this is James chapter 5. We'll begin here in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, this sounds like it's going to be fun, doesn't it? There's some heavy words here, which we'll get to in just a moment. But before we even begin to unpack this text, let me address something that I suspect at least a few of you are thinking in this moment. This text starts with, Come now, you rich. And so some of us might be thinking, "That's not me. <laughs> I'm not the rich. You know, I, I've got debt. I shop at Goodwill, and maybe I'm on a fixed income or whatever it is." And so, so if you're thinking in this moment, "Okay, this text isn't for me. I'll just wait till next week," let me just tell you now, it is. It is for you. This text is for all of us, and it's not just because. We're richer than we think we are. Even though in comparison to the rest of the world, I'm sure that's true of almost all, if not all of us. We are richer than we think we are, but it's bigger than just about this. The Bible is the word of God. This is the way in which we hear the voice of our Heavenly Father, And just the fact that this is from God, that by itself makes it worth attending to, whether we feel like it's applicable to us or not. So this is the Word of God, but it's also the Word of God that's not just spoken out into the air. God doesn't just speak His words to nowhere in particular. God's Word is spoken to us. It's spoken to all of God's people. We're told his words are breathed out to us and that they're profitable and beneficial to equip us, to equip all of us who are in Jesus. So a passage of scripture that addresses marriage, for example, that passage is good for equipping uh, us with the word of God for all people, married or single. A passage that's on homosexuality will still be good for equipping a straight and a gay person uh, a passage on women will be good for men, too. A passage on elders will be good for the whole church. You get the idea. So the, the, when we reach now a section of the word of God that addresses riches, this is for you, too, whether you have any sort of significant wealth or not. We're going to look at how this text uh, touches all of us in just a moment, but, but I just want to make sure that you're not going to check out because you're not you rich, okay? Still stay stu- tuned in with me. Now, that said, when we, when we look at the text, the subject that James presses on here is the matter of unholy riches. That's what he's dealing with unholy riches. And he mentions a couple of different forms or uses of these unholy riches. One is excessive spending and the other is excessive saving. Let's unpack each of these. Let's look at the first, which we can call the riches of luxury or excessive spending. This is usually the form that we picture in our minds, at least I do, maybe you do too, when when we think of riches. You know, luxury celebrity parties and private jets and cushy yachts, you know, everything that's shiny and bubbly and gold, plated at least, so it looks pretty. This is the sort of luxury that some people would consider the good life, but the Bible does not have a lot of positive words about that sort of luxury, James, just in this text, where is it? In verse five, equates luxury with things like self-indulgence and fattening of our hearts for a day of slaughter. A luxury like this is often accompanied by words of woe. The prophet Amos has quite a lot to say about luxurious. Living, he says this in Amos chapter 6, verse 4. He says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, who stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, and sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall be the first of those who go into exile. Amos' words are a bit unsettling because they sound a little bit too familiar. You know, the luxury that Amos describes is is not riding on jets, it's just lying on the couch and eating and drinking whatever you please and happily listening to music. He describes the luxurious ones as those who are at ease. So this sort of luxury is not just for the elite, you know, 1% of people who, who own things like space shuttles and NBA teams you know this sort of luxury is not just for hollywood and new york city the ease of this luxury lives here in hannibal too in fact you know when we talk when we hear james talk about the luxury of self-indulgence that word self-indulgence is used only one other time in the new testament And in that other time, do you know who the writer is talking about? The one who is luxuriously self-indulgent? It's not some fat cat politician. It's not some, you know, A-list movie celebrity. The person is speaking of the luxury of widows. That widows were living luxuriously. That's not to say, of course, that, you know, every widow is self-indulgent You know, that's not the case. There are many uh, who set their hope on God, who continue to pray and seek God. But some widows, Paul writes to, to Timothy in First Timothy chapter five, some of these widows have entered into a sort of luxury. And he doesn't tell us what that luxury looks like, but we can imagine what that might have been at least in today's context. Maybe some of these widows were puttering around in their RVs from week to week, finding a new fishing hole. Maybe they were watching Wheel of Fortune while eating takeout every day, day in, day out. Maybe their luxury was just a life of sitting on the porch all day long, watching the bird feeders, You know, if that's the luxurious life, what a waste. What a waste. Paul says, in her luxury, she is dead even while she lives. Surely we don't want that for ourselves. Do we think such things are pleasing to the Lord? There's one sort of riches here mentioned, excessive spending or luxury, but there's another form of riches mentioned here which I'll describe as hoarding. Hoarding is, of course, not excessive spending but excessive saving. And this form of riches doesn't often look like riches. Riches, In fact, it often it, it looks like the opposite of all the glitz <laughs> and glamour. But you can see him talk about it in verses 2 and 3. You know, you've got riches, but they've rotted. You've got garments, but they're moth-eaten. You've got gold and silver, but they're corroded. You know, these folks have, like, squirreled away riches and tucked away all their possessions, and these things lay virtually untouched until they're forgotten or just spoiled. Never spent, never worn, never given away. They just sit in the hoard. You know, things like buried treasure sound very exciting. Very adventurous buried treasure. You know, Very piratey. Until you realize that buried treasure, whoever it is that owned that buried treasure, never got to use it. Just laid under the dirt. Never enjoyed, never a blessing. There's never any good gained from it all. It just is left are lost to rot. Sometimes we like to think of these things as saving, but they're usually not. They're just hoards. Do we think such things are pleasing to the Lord? The Bible doesn't have much good to say about hoarding away our wealth either. You know, just before Jesus tells us where your treasure is there your heart will be also that's where he tells us that if you lay up or store or hoard or stockpile treasures on earth in the end it'll be destroyed by moth or rust or thieves hoarding riches in this way is not freedom it's not freedom it's foolishness Jesus even tells a parable about it to this end in Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 12. Listen for the way that riches are dealt. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 16, I'll begin. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself... What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'm going to do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you've ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Hmm. Now, to be clear, None of these words tell us that all saving or all spending is bad. It's not. Not not according to God's word. You know, if we think that, so that might make some of us afraid to, I don't know, take anything, you know, like a vacation without feeling guilty about it. Or or, you know, be afraid to buy a new car or a new tractor or a new pair of shoes. You know, think you have to get everything secondhand or or maybe afraid to open a a savings account or some sort of retirement system. The scripture calls for wisdom in these things. It's not easily laid out, and we don't have time to address every, every nuance of that. What we do know is that these things are not necessarily wrong, but they're not necessarily right either. Just because you can afford it does not mean you should pursue it. The Bible is full of cautions, warnings even, about money. Full. They're everywhere. And we should take them seriously. You know, one of the most famous ones is when Jesus tells his disciples it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus means to challenge our relationship to our riches. Because riches have a way of suffocating us, of choking out fruitfulness in our lives, of of keeping us from really trusting Jesus, of putting faith in Jesus. And if, if we continue to cling to riches... If we hold on to that and that becomes our hope, it will end up closing the door to the kingdom of God to us. So be watchful. Take a look at your heart. Plead for the Holy Spirit's help to purge us of such idols. Money is a cruel master. A cruel master. And the more we have of it, The stronger its mastery over us is likely to be until it even becomes a new God. These are the broader words that Scripture has about money and riches. But we're looking today at the way James addresses this issue. And James addresses this issue of riches more specifically. He's not just talking about riches. Here he's talking about unholy riches. That is, ill-gotten gain or or polluted wealth. You notice in verse 4, he names a particular situation. The context, at least for some of these riches... Uh, There he describes how the money, at least a large part of it, was gained from withholding rightful wages that were to be paid to someone else. That's a form of fraud. It's stealing what belongs to someone else, even though it started in my pocket to begin with. And as this, it's sin. It is against the law of God. There's even principles about this in the Old Testament, plenty of places I could go. Deuteronomy chapter 24 uh, addresses it this way. Verse uh, 15, the law says this, you shall give him, the worker, you shall give the worker his wage on the same day before the sun sets. For he's poor and counts on it Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. In James's context, the owners were withholding these things indefinitely, it seems, and they were getting rich on their oppression of the poor. This isn't just riches, it's unholy riches. And our God favors the plight of the poor. our God hears their cries. And his response here is that the day is coming, you rich. The day is coming. And unless you surrender to Jesus, who is merciful, who saves sinners, who transforms hearts, unless you surrender to Jesus, a reckoning for your riches will come. And I will work against your evils. There is a storm cloud of his wrath brewing upon these unholy riches. You may have laid up piles and piles and piles of wealth, but not one cent of it will help you in the day of the Lord. You cannot bribe him for his love, you cannot pay him off to gain his grace, but you've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. So come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Burr.. I need to take a breath. As chilling as all this is, there are two sides to this coin. The day of the Lord is coming, and that day will bring death to some, but life to others. And James is actually focusing, believe it or not, on that second part, The life that comes with this. James here is not mainly focusing on the warning or even on the judgment. He is focusing on the hope and comfort that this brings. How? I have to admit, I didn't notice this in my own. Some other, I I read lots to prepare for sermons, and some others have noticed this, and I've come convinced of, of the case. Let me say this beforehand if James's words and my words so far have struck fear in your heart, if you in this time have become convicted of sin or fearful about some sense of your own riches, let me be clear, you need to repent. You need to repent. You know, run to Jesus for his mercy. Do not walk, run. And Christ will receive you He will receive you. We we praise the Holy Spirit for his grace of repentance now that draws us to God. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. So go to Jesus. Let me be clear about that. Repentance is required. And yet, if we listen to this section of James, he is not calling for repentance. Did you notice that? Nowhere in here is he really calling for the rich to change their ways. You know, when he talks about them weeping and mourning, it's not tears of remorse. These are cries of horror. James here is not calling for repentance. He's pronouncing the Lord's judgment. Now, why does he do that? James here is not mainly, partly, but not mainly talking to the rich. He's talking about the rich to the brothers, to all of us as Christians. That's why at the end, in verse 7, he says, "'Therefore, brothers.'" And as we read the scripture, whenever we see or hear the word therefore, that should put a little flag in our minds. You know, when we see the word therefore, we're supposed to ask, what's the therefore therefore? A therefore tells us that the focus or the emphasis is on what's after, that it looks toward this sort of big conclusion. So in other words, I've said all this therefore to tell you this. I've told you about the woe and the frightfulness of the end of unholy riches to tell you this. Therefore, brothers, what? What's his goal at the end? Therefore, brothers, verse 7, be patient. That's why he's told us this. To make us patient. And it's not just something we're supposed to do. He doesn't say, you better be patient, although I suppose he could. He's telling us we're now free to do this. We can be patient. Because it's not up to us to make everything right. Of course, we do what we can to bring justice, to help the needy and the oppressed. But but we look to God for these things. We trust God to deal with the rich. You know, we sing that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. That's true, not only that he rules but that he's coming in his rule. That the Lord of hosts has heard the cries of the weak, the oppress of the laborers and the Lord is not deaf. He is not ignorant. He is not inactive or dormant like some sort of bear that's sleeping off the winter. The Lord is the judge who is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord is at hand, we're told. And at the day of the coming of the Lord, everything, everyone will either be washed in the blood of Jesus that is reborn, saved by Jesus, or they will be swept away in the blood of their own sin. Either way, the Lord will make things right again. He will deal with all unholiness, not just unholy riches as we see here, all Unholiness will be dealt with. Our God is an anchor of hope for us, a source of comfort for us. The Lord is coming, therefore, be patient, my brothers. We'll look more about this patience next week, Lord willing where James addresses patience a bit further. But today, I just wanna add one last thing here. I wanna end with a particular temptation that might be disruptive to our patience. Specifically in relation to riches, there can be a temptation to envy riches. Even if I don't necessarily want the jet jet or the yacht, there seems to be a sort of freedom that comes with a measure of wealth that can be tempting to us. And how do we deal with that? The author of one of the Psalms, Asaph, uh, writes a lot about this in Psalm 73. It's worth the whole read. We don't have time for it this morning, but but maybe take some time to read Psalm 73 on your own at some point. Psalm uh, 73, Asaph is wrestling with interacting with riches. He says this in beginning in verse three. He says, "I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken. Like the rest of mankind, he looks at these people and sees their ease." that they seem to need nothing. They're able to spend and save at will, and that looks really good. So how is he supposed to deal with this? He goes on, but picks up in verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end that is asaph is looking at them now through the perspective of god and he's seeing the end the outcome of their wealth that it's really no gain at all what looks glorious now actually produces more ruin And a light bulb goes on for Asaph so that he ends the psalm with these words and we'll end here too. Verse 26, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be near God I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you make this true of us too, that it would be our good to be near God? In this context, would you help us to be patient? Not to put our hope in uncertain things that might rust or spoil, but to be rich in good works and to take hold of the real life that's in you. We know where our treasure is there, our heart is also. So Lord, would you make yourself our treasure that we would come to trust you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.